The Abounding Joy of New Testament Hope, part two. Today, the sources of hope, three of them. We'll look at two today. The grace of God, the body of Christ, and the encouragement of the scriptures. First text. We read it, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you. Brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, God our Father, who loved us, here it is, and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. One more text I want to look at. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession, here it is again, of our hope. Same subject. Without wavering. So there's, there's the problem. Not, it's not denying so much as wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not not neglecting to meet together. He's still talking about hope. Not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit. That's the way it it works. It, It starts and then it turns into a habit as is the habit of some, but in encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day drawing near. All right. Last week, we, we took actually quite a bit of time studying the nature of the definition of the word hope in general, and then biblical hope in particular. And, and the crucial difference, it took us about 20 minutes, between the two is this, that we normally use the word hope as as an expression of desire. It's like crossing your fingers. I hope. Biblical hope, on the other hand, is more defined in terms of a confident expectation based on the promise of God and the faithfulness of God. And at the end of last Sunday morning's message, you can get it online, we, we saw the importance of hope in two things in particular, how it fuels both faith and holiness. Hope as the fuel for faith and holiness. My hope, apparently, is to be something so outstandingly noticeable that those who aren't even a part of the Christian faith see it. Everybody knows these words in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, regard Christ as holy, always being prepared to make a defense. And, and it seems to me this is where we put the emphasis. And so it's like an apologetics thing. 
Somebody asks you why you believe, and you can give them a rationale. You can answer their questions. You can deal with their objections, and they're going to go, wow, I guess this must be true after all. And we think that that's what that text is about. And I'm not denying that it's, it's in there, but it's not the thrust. The defense isn't an apologetic defense. Make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope. That is in you. I think it's quite a shocking verse. Peter identifies the light of my witness not to be knowledge, I can answer all your questions, or even my holiness. That's very important. He says people will be drawn to Christ. Think about this. People will be drawn to Christ by what they see me longing for hoping for. They're asking for a reason, not for your faith. They're asking for the reason of your hope. They see your whole life anxiously awaiting something else. They, they, see, your, they see your affections being totally different from theirs. They see your expectations, your longings, and they go, what, what is it you're after here? I've always noticed the responsibility I have as a Christian to be ready to give a verbal defense when asked. What I hadn't found as shocking as I maybe should have was the obvious fact that, that I should expect, I should actually expect people to approach me does this happen to you? I should expect people to approach me and ask about the, the reason for my hope in the first place. People, people should question me because they notice me thinking about something different from what they're concentrating on. They should be, they should be surprised. How can I put it? They should be surprised by my longings that they don't have. At least not very defined. So in other words, if people notice anything about me as a Christian, it should be my hope. I have this hope. They should find it so amazing that, that they actually can't keep themselves from approaching me and asking me about it. Their, their curiosity will force them to maybe push past their natural shyness about approaching someone they might not know very well. So strong is the appeal of my hope that they see. It's, I think it's an amazing verse of Scripture. So if they see me hoping in, in financial prosperity, they're not going to ask me about that. If they see me hoping my kids will do well in college or university, they're not going to ask me about that. If they see me hoping that, that I'll have a good marriage and my kids will have a good marriage, they're not going to ask me about that. But my hope. If that's true, I think it is, if that's true, then there's a question that just bubbles up naturally, I would think. Where, where, where does that kind of hope come from? How can I get more of it? Doesn't that make sense? 
Where does that kind of hope come from? The three sources of hope we're going to be looking at. The grace of God, the encouragement of believers in the church, and the indwelling word of God. We'll just look at the first two this morning. Hope from the grace of God. The text we looked at was 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 17. I'm not going to read it all again. Let me just jump right down to the last part, to the 16th verse. Now may, our Lord, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal hope and good comfort through grace. A good, sorry, good hope through grace. Notice those words. Good hope through or by or coming from divine grace. So that, that, that's one of the places, one of the roots. That's where hope comes from. It comes from God's grace. More specifically, it comes from uh, noticing God's grace. Not, not just receiving grace absent-mindedly, contemplating our experience of grace in Christ. So in other words, there are implications to receiving grace that will generate hope as long as I think it through. I, I have to, I have to uh, tell myself things like this. If there's no grace, there's no hope. If my salvation depends on anything other than grace, and that describes many, many religions, okay, that can give ethical instructions, but if this is true, they can never give you hope. Never give you hope. There are many systems and religions designed to somehow reach God in this world. I'm sure all of them have their good teachings. All of them have probably high moral aspirations, many of them, codes of moral conduct. And so I'm, I'm supposed to think this through. Religions can give instruction, and that's fine as far as it goes, but if this is true, hope doesn't come just from instruction. Hope comes from grace through Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can give you hope this morning. Somebody needs to tell you that. Only Jesus Christ can give you hope. That's because Jesus is God's only offer of gracious redemption. Extended, here's the part, extended to people while they're still guilty sinners. In other words, before they qualify. Jesus pardons sinners. The Bible says he died for the ungodly. There weren't any godly people to die for. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. But it requires humility to receive it and thoughtfulness to, to process it. If, if I get what I deserve, there is no hope. If I get what Jesus has won on the cross, if Jesus really died for the ungodly, if grace really is free and amazing, then Paul is right on the money when he says Jesus gives us good hope through grace. That's why the symbols of justice, it's a balance, scales. That's the universal symbol of justice. 
And that's why the symbol of Christianity, generally speaking, is a cross. It's the greatest symbol of hope for guilty people, for people who don't qualify, for people who are ungodly. Paul talks about Romans 5, 2. There's this grace in which we stand. I take that to mean that, that I live in God's grace every day. It wasn't just when I got saved. I, I need, as I stand behind this pulpit, I'm desperately reliant on God's grace. As you are, as you sit there. I want to talk about that in a minute. Grace should do many things in my life. It should make me thankful. It should make me holy. I would never want to do anything to make light of the precious blood of my Redeemer, my Lord. Grace should make me forgiving to others if I've received it. So I don't just receive grace. I, it flows through me. It's, it's living grace. It's extended grace. All of those things are true. But, but as much as any of those things, grace makes me hopeful. Hopeful because not only did my salvation not originate with my good deeds and merit, it is not sustained by my good deeds and merit, nor is yours. And everyone in the room ought to go, Whew. We stand because of God's grace. Our eternal future is secure because of God's grace. Heaven is certain because of God's grace. The new creation because of God's grace. My own efforts were, are, and always will be a shaky foundation, but God's grace is unending in, in its scope and victory and power as I trust in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this, another text I want to look at. I'm talking about hope coming from grace. That's what we're looking at right now. Ephesians 2.12. So here's the verb. Look for verbs. Here's what we're supposed to do. Remember that you, are, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and here it is, Having, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul writes to this church. He writes to redeemed people. And it's, it's not just that we're told we were without hope. That's in there. But that's not even close to all that's in there. The point is, we're told, now that we have hope, that's us, now that we have hope in Christ, Paul says people like we should remember that we didn't always have this hope. That we were once completely without hope. Think about this. People like, like I, I need, to, I need to actually make a forced recall. It doesn't come naturally to me. I need to make a forced recall that I was without hope and apart from Christ. I, I have to activate 
this kind of mental processing. And let me tell you why. I need to do that because I don't have an outwardly horrendous past out of which I was saved. Uh, my upbringing was, was nothing but Christian, church-centered, as far back as I can remember. No crimes, no adultery, uh, no drunkenness, no criminal record. We killed a few gophers once. But, but I look back on my life and it doesn't look hopeless. It, it looks idyllic. It didn't appear hopeless. Paul says, Don, it was. It was. It's simply too easy to forget this. And, and we're to remember it because we're to, we're to force ourselves in this contrasting of two conditions, hopeless and hopeful. We've, we've all freely been given hope, and the hope comes only from the fact that we didn't earn God's grace, We need to experience grace and then hope is increased as we remember that we were without hope. It is, it is, it is harder, emotionally more taxing for me to be thankful for grace than someone who has had a very different upbringing than I had who came to Christ. It is much easier for them to be stunned and amazed and surprised and thankful for grace than for me but we were both equally without hope. Am I making myself clear? Remember. You go out to your car after this service and, and you're, you're getting into your Mercedes. Sit there in the nice leather seats and say, I was, I was absolutely without hope in this world. Two. Hope comes from the encouragement from believers in the local church, the body of Christ on earth. So it comes from divine grace. Hope comes from grace. And remembering grace and remembering you were without hope. Great hope, hope comes from grace. And now it comes from to the body of Christ. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. It's still about hope. Let us hold fast the confession of not our, not our salvation even, but our hope. Here's the problem. The problem is wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us, let us consider. So I'm supposed to think about this. You go out for lunch today. You sit with your spouse and you say, hmm, is there anything else I can do that might build my hope in Christ. That's that verb. Consider. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. It gets to be a habit. But encouraging one another. And all the, so it's an increasing thing. All the more as you see the day drawing near. I hope I can make you see how 
tightly this is linked to the previous point about hope coming from remembering grace, the freeness of grace in Jesus Christ. So when I talk about, when the text talks about gathering together in the, in the body of Christ, we're not moving, and this is the subtle lie that people believe. We're not moving now from grace to legalism, grace to rules. That's not the transition we're making here. We're not moving from grace to legalism when we talk about gathering together in the local church, the body of Christ. It's not like we're moving from grace to religious rules. And the reason I have to say that is there's a, there's a really big movement afoot telling Christians that you, know, you can really be committed to Jesus and you don't really have to worry much about a local church. That Jesus came to save people from religion and, and just make them free from any kind of corporate discipline. And, and, and let me say this, there's a sense in which that idea, Jesus came to free us from religion. There's a sense in which it is true and a sense in which it is not. It's true in the sense that religion can't save you or me or anyone. It's true in the sense that religion can be a deadly enemy to a deep, uh, authentic spiritual life as it was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with whom Jesus almost never saw eye to eye. So religion, any religion, practice apart from the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ, religion practiced apart from those two things can only do one of two things. If you practice your religion well, it will lead to human pride and a pretty loveless condemnation of other people who don't practice it as well as you do. And if you practice it poorly, it will lead to despair and condemnation and hopelessness. So religion all by itself, it's true, has little hope to give to people like we. And so certainly Jesus came to deliver us from the power of human religious systems. That much is an important truth to remember, but there's another sense in which that tired old line, Jesus never came to start a religion and you don't have to be religious to go to heaven. There's a sense in which it's the most naive thing that otherwise intelligent Christians say. Undisciplined Christians frequently use that old line, Jesus came to save me from religion, as a cloak of uh, spirituality that kind of masks their own laziness. Let me, let me explain. Don't tune me out. The first point of this teaching was hope is the product of receiving grace through Jesus Christ. All right? And then we labored for a little while to show the importance of not only receiving grace, but remembering that we were once without hope. So we'll appreciate grace. That's when we went to Ephesians 2.12, you were without hope. So remember the difference grace makes. Remember your life, no matter how dark and desperate things get, has been eternally graced when you didn't deserve it, 
and that changes everything, and we all say, praise God. But there's a problem. Life is so dished out in this fallen world that we don't always remember the hope we have through grace. Boy, life, life can pile up. It can bury hope as surely as the winter snow buries your flowers. Life sometimes buries hope, mocks hope, makes it seem distant and cold. What shall we do? In a world like this, what shall we do? Well, I can pray. I can read my Bible. Of course, we all know there's a bit of a problem with that. When my faith is tired and my hope is cold and weak, I can bring a pretty dull mind. Maybe you're way godlier. But I can bring a pretty dull mind to the Word and a pretty cold heart to my times of prayer. Has that ever happened to you? I, th- I know I should be talking to somebody. <laughs> God has a plan. God has a plan when motivation gets sluggish. He wants to link us up with those who aren't going through the same dark time we're facing right now. People who are not sluggish right at the same time. But people who have been there before, perhaps when we ourselves were flying higher spiritually. And God wants to infuse confidence and hope into my heart through their faith and their hope and their testimony and their prayers. He wants to pump his word into my heart, perhaps from someone else, someone who may feel more passionate about it at that moment than I do. And that's exactly the thinking behind the instruction of this Holy Spirit-inspired text. Look at it again. Let me clean it up. Okay, whatever. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So it's about holding on. He who promised is faithful. The problem isn't on God's end. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Stir up one another. Stir up one another. Come on! You know, that kind of thing. To love and good works. Not, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging the more, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me just wrap up with a couple of things. First... I see that hope must be held on to. So it's, it's there. Hold fast. Hold fast the confession. So I, I guess what I'm learning is hope, hope is not automatically self-sustaining. Don't, don't let it slip out of your grasp. We've already talked about that. Second, and this is an important point, sustaining hope is a corporate venture, not just an individual venture. I get that when I look at, when I look at 24 and 25. Let us consider how to s- stir up one another. It's a one another thing. 
to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. It's a together thing, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. It's a one another thing. And this doesn't get less. It gets more, all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're doing it backwards. Most churches are doing it less and less. So you notice that repetition of one another together. And third, I said there were three things. The need for the local church will increase with the passing of time. It won't decrease. That's 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I think the writer anticipates something. I think he anticipates that people will get increasingly busy. He anticipates that we will find the number of family commitments expanding. It's not a cheap place to live, this region. So financial pressures, they're going to increase, and it will require more and more incomes in each household and more late nights. And then goodness knows the schools are getting busy. There's the hockey, the soccer, there's the swimming lessons, the piano lessons. That's going to demand more and more parental supervision. We're just, just busy. And so, so what are we to do to keep our hope alive? How do we not crowd out eternal hope with a million legitimate, competing, momentary concerns? And I'm, I'm just here to tell you, believe me, I know this from experience, the Bible's answer to that is not loved by very many Christians. You do it with increased, deep commitment to your local church. You do it fighting the tendency of neglect. You do it quite simply by not neglecting to meet together. And then the writer adds, as, as is the habit of some. Doesn't say who those some are, but we know that they're church people because they used to gather more than they do now. He's not talking about atheists. Probably because they were increasingly busy, and the writer says, if I'm to keep hope alive in my heart, I have to resist the influence and pull of other Christians in the same church who don't make church a priority that they once did. Don't allow hope-stealing habits to creep into your soul unnoticed, gradually, subtly. Hope has roots. We talked about two. Relish grace. Remember, you were hopeless. Have your hope fed and nourished in the body of Christ and do it all the more, not all the less, as you see the day approaching. We'll do one more next Sunday. Let's pray.